Welcome back to the Health Investment Podcast. When cardiologist Brett Schur agreed to let me interview him, I did a happy dance. Seriously. I've been following Dr. Schur for quite some time now, so when I chatted with him, I was starstruck. On his website, Dr. Schur says he hopes to be the most unique cardiologist you have ever encountered. After listening to this episode, you'll see why this is true. A little bit about his background. Dr. Schur is board certified in adult cardiovascular diseases, adult echocardiography, and nuclear cardiology. He also has certifications in functional medicine, personal training, fitness nutrition, and behavior modification. Even though he spent years learning the invasive procedures and medications used to treat heart disease, he wants to do everything in his power to make sure those multi-billion dollar tools and drugs go unused. He wants to empower all of his patients to help themselves, to empower them to make the best informed choices possible about everything from food to activity to sleep to stress management. Because the best way to quote-unquote treat someone, in his opinion, is to prevent the need for treatment in the first place. Seriously, buckle your seatbelt for this 45-minute interview, and maybe even listen with a pen and paper handy. You're going to learn so much that you'll want to refer to your notes afterwards. Before we get to the interview, I want to share a five-star Apple podcast review. Jazzy Yoga Girl wrote, Great start. Brooke is very authentic, the tips she gives are simple and doable, and the production quality is excellent. As an official podcast nerd, I already predict this will become one of my faves. Can't wait to see where this goes. Thanks so much for taking the time to leave an honest Apple podcast review. I truly appreciate each and every review I get. All right, time to hear from the knowledgeable Dr. Brett Schur. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Sher. Thank you so much for being here with me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I have been following your work for a long time, and I know my listeners are going to get so much value out of this discussion. Yeah, thanks so much, Brooke. It's it's a pleasure to be on your show today. So just jumping right into it, I was wondering, I know you are a self-proclaimed low-carb cardiologist, so I was wondering if you could explain your transition from being a more traditional cardiologist to this low-carb cardiologist, where that kind of came about. Yeah, it was a really interesting transition. You know, when I started my cardiology fellowship way back when, um, I, I did a preventive cardiology fellowship and it was a Dean Ornish style fellowship. So it was uh, very low fat, um, very, you know, vegetarian based. And that's what I was trained in. And that's what I thought was the right approach. And, you know, it was a wonderful program in terms of getting people exercising and getting them to quit smoking and the, 
uh, stress management and the social connections and everybody loved those parts. But in retrospect, people didn't really love the diet so much. But yet, you know, that's sort of what I thought was the right thing to do. And then I got into uh, general practice and um, really tried to uh, build as much of a preventive practice as I could through that. And, you know, I was sort of bright eyed and bushy tailed and ready to save the world and stamp out cardiovascular disease. And then reality set in and I saw what kind of impact I was having on people. And it was pretty, pretty distressing that I wasn't having near the impact I thought I would. And so many people just weren't sticking with their lifestyle. They were quote unquote, you know, failed lifestyle. That's how we labeled them. And many people continue to still label them because we're giving all the right advice. You just can't stick with it. It's your fault. You know, we don't come out and say that, but that's sort of the mentality. And eventually I just kind of got fed up and said, I need to do something different. So I started uh, Boundless Health. It was started as a small boutique wellness center inside of a gym. And, um, you know, I was still had my cardiology practice. So I had to work with somebody who was going to be great with people and really help them. And there was no question. It was my friend, Dustin, because he is just one of these amazing people and amazing health coach, but he also is very knowledgeable in keto and low carb. And that's not why I chose to work with him. And in the beginning, you know, our, our treatment for our patients really had nothing to do with keto. But then one day we had, um, you know, there were a couple, two in particular challenging patients that we were sort of struggling with. And he said, why don't we try a keto diet? Uh, And I looked at him like he had two heads and I said, what are you kidding me? I'm a cardiologist. I don't want to kill these people. I want to help them because that's what I had been taught. Right. Right. And to his credit, he looked at me and he said, well, have you actually looked into it and researched it on your own? And, you know, he called me on it and I said, you know what? No, I am basically regurgitating what I had been taught by my higher ups. And he said, I suggest you look into it. And I did. And it was like, I was ravenous for more information because as soon as I learned a little bit about it and I saw that there were studies in 2002, 2008, 2009, like academic peer-reviewed studies of a keto diet and the benefits of it. And I thought, why have I never heard of this before? And then still, you know, I just devoured everything I could read and I said, I got to try it myself. I tried it myself and, you know, I was never you know, really overweight, but those extra, you know, five to eight pounds that I tended to carry around just disappeared. And I felt great. And I said, you know what, we, we have to try this with our patients now. And we tried it with those two in particular, and they did very well. And then we tried it with more and they did very well. And you can't unsee that once you see it. And look, I'm not the type of person who says everybody needs to be low carb. Everybody needs to be keto. I don't believe in one size fits all, but, but this is such a powerful tool that everybody should have in their toolbox and works well for so many people. The fact that medicine isn't teaching it as a standard of care to me is, is crazy. And that's what I want to change now. So that was my transition to low carb cardiologist. And now, you know, working with diet doctor, we want to change the world. We don't just want individuals to learn about this and use it for themselves. I want every physician out there to know that this is a valuable tool in their toolbox. So, uh, you know, I want people who are not physicians, but go to physicians to say, Hey, listen to this guy, listen, what he has to say, go to the diet doctor website, look at these, look at the material they have. That's evidence-based. We have a CME course, continuing medical education course coming out. I mean, this is something that we need to, I need to shout from the rooftops even more. So people know that at least that it's an option because boy, we sure are not chart that it is even possible to help your patients this way. 
Wow. That you just said so many amazing things and so many things that I want to follow up on. But one thing you mentioned just to touch on is the CME course. So how many of your colleagues would you say had little to no nutrition education in med school? Would you say that's the majority or? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, And nutrition education, even when we do have it in, in med school, it's nutrition to prevent severe um, nutrient deficiencies. Okay. You know, Quashacor, beriberi, scurvy, these things that we just don't see and really don't exist in a, in a, in modern um, industrialized world. You can certainly see it in third world countries. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's the focus of most of the nutrition. And then of course the, the physiology of how the body you know, works and digests foods and, and things like that, but nothing about really very little, if anything, about, you know, which dietary patterns uh, work for people, how they help people, what the pluses and minuses are, nothing along those lines. Wow. So you mentioned keto, and I'm wondering, I've read conflicting things. Some people think that, you know, you can thrive on a keto diet forever. Other people say it should be more cyclical thing that you do once or twice a year. What is your stance? Do you feel like a lot of people really thrive on it forever or do you, do you recommend it as more of a short-term intervention? Yeah, I, I abs- absolutely see people thrive on it long-term. Um, now that doesn't mean everybody has to, right? I right. still, I believe in, I believe in carb cycling and keto cycling for the right person, but, um, for someone who just wants to keep it simple and stick with one dietary pattern, uh, I, I find absolutely nothing wrong for the vast majority of people of being keto and, you know, keto can mean different things for different people. Um, some people who are very physically active and insulin sensitive can eat 75 or hundred grams of carbs and be producing ketones and being ketosis. Other people with diabetes, metabolic disease, insulin resistance, they have to be less than 20 grams of net carbs. Otherwise they're not going to be, um, in ketosis. So, you know, it can mean different things and look very differently depending on the person. You know, I'm very fortunate. I'm very physically active. I'm very insulin sensitive. So I can get away with, you know, lots of sweet potato and Brussels sprouts and, and some, um, low carb granolas and things that a lot of my patients can't get away with, um, to remain in ketosis. And a lot of people I see in, in my, um, in my online practice, one of the first questions I ask them is what benefits have you gotten by being keto? Because we have to ask, is it worth staying in ketosis or um, would you do just as well being a little more liberal and going low carb, you know, staying below like 150 grams of carbs per day, making sure the right choice of carbs, but not necessarily being in ketosis. And the answer is different for different people. So, so it's a long way around um, your question to say it, it works both ways. There's, there's no harm for the vast majority of the people of staying in ketosis. And if you're going to see extra benefits of being in ketosis than not, then it's worth staying in it. Like if you are trying to treat and reverse your diabetes, absolutely. I think um, most people should, should try and stay in ketosis because that's where you're going to get more benefit. If you're trying to lose a large amount of weight, yes, you're going to get more benefit. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to get no benefit by being low carb and not in ketosis. It's just a, it's a question of degree. So the more extreme version, um, of, you know, being in ketosis, would you recommend people eat vegetables? I see a lot of pictures of people just eating, you know, butter and ghee and fat and eggs. 
So mm-hmm. where, what's mm-hmm. your stance on adding, you mentioned starchy vegetables, maybe for some people, but what about the non-starchy vegetables? Do you, do you include those in a keto diet? Oh, absolutely. So I, I mentioned starchy vegetables only to say that if you are um, physically active and insulin sensitive, you can get away with those because you sh- really shouldn't be eating those on a keto diet for most people. But the non-starchy vegetables, absolutely. You know, the, the spinach and the broccoli and the cauliflower and the kale, you know, for, for a large serving, you might have, you know, three or four net carbs in a large serving. So you can definitely eat a lot of those. Um, and I, I do recommend it. You know, I, I believe in a quote unquote balanced diet, you know, making sure you're getting vegetables and nutrients. Um, you know, I was, I was taken aback by the whole carnivore movement a, a few years ago, um, and very surprised by it. And my initial gut response was, this is crazy. This is dangerous. What are these people doing? But same sort of thing. Once you look into it and once you kind of really look at the science behind it and how people are doing, that's more of a, you know, dogma, dogmatic belief than it is any, um, any real proof that this is dangerous, but I I don't recommend carnivore to start for most people. I would recommend a a balanced, uh, low carb diet with plenty of above ground starchy vegetables. Um, and look, when it comes to meat and, you know, saturated fats and processed meats, the evidence that those are dangerous is horrible. I mean, that is just awful quality evidence. So I think they, they can play a, a, an important role in a low carb diet um, because part of diet is enjoying your food, feeling full, um, you know, wanting to eat and enjoying what you eat. And then realizing it's okay to wait until your next meal. And that's, that's such an important part. So if eating bacon is going to help you with that, sure, eat bacon. But I don't believe everybody needs to eat steak wrapped in bacon every single meal to be, uh, to be keto. That, that's not how it has to look. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's just like with everything, people go to extremes, you know, and then mm-hmm. start posting pictures on social media. So I think a lot of people in their mind – think of keto, or I know I did for a time of just, it was just all fat and meat and no vegetables, but I don't right. think that's how it has to be at all. Yeah. And, and on, on our website at dietdoctor.com, we have a, um, a keto vegetarian guide. We have a vegan keto guide. I mean, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. And, um, there's, if that's how you choose to be, if you prefer to be vegetarian, if you prefer to be vegan, you can still be keto. You can still be low carb. And that's certainly a healthier version than sort of the standard vegan full of processed foods and, and high carb and, and, you know, wheat and soy and corn and, and all that. I'd, I'd rather see somebody, you know, avoid all that, um, as their first line of health. And then if they choose to be vegan, that's fine. That's their choice. There are ways to do it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you mentioned a couple times the Diet Doctor website, and I'm obsessed with that website. I think I even mm-hmm. found that before I found out about you. Um, and then I was so excited when you teamed up with them to do their podcast and you know, to kind of weigh in on the resources on that page. But it just gets better and better. And just for people to know, there's all of these visuals that just show you the continuum of carbs and sugar. And it's just the most visually pleasing site I think I've ever been to in terms of figuring out what to eat. It's incredible. Yeah. I think the visual guides are so helpful because you can say, you know, this has three grams, this has four grams of carbs and, but seeing it and just actually seeing the picture is so helpful. And there's, there's actually one, um, 
there's one post that says like, what does 20 grams of carbs look like? What does 50 grams of carbs look like? And it actually shows you sort of a plate and what it looks like. So all you have to do is sort of try and mimic that. And our recipes are geared towards keeping you, you know, in the right amount of protein um, and low in the low carb. So it's, um, if you don't want to count, if you don't want to think about it, you just follow our recipes and it's all geared towards success. And, um, yeah, that's one of the things I love about our website is it, it is, like you said, very visually pleasing and we just try and make it as helpful as possible to give you as much information. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably the most helpful website out there currently. Um, and I've done a lot of research, but I mean, it's amazing. So yeah, that's really good. awesome that you're you're partnered with them now, and your podcast. We'll mention at the end as well where people can find you. But you know, you're also doing an amazing job on that podcast now. So thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah I mean, we we want to make it easy for people to be able to live a low carb lifestyle, but also educate them about the health aspects of it because there's so much misinformation, and unfortunately, a lot of the misinformation is coming from the medical establishment um, because we rely on such poor quality evidence that is not meant to draw the conclusions that sort of the medical establishment draws from them. And, and we're fighting decades of teachings, um, that just are, are not very enlightened at all. So it's a, in a way it's an uphill battle, but in the other way, we're making a lot of progress because now the American diabetes association has endorsed, um, low carb nutrition, the obesity, um, medicine society has endorsed it. You know, it's, it's becoming mainstream. Um, even if a lot of doctors are still very hesitant uh, to implement it. And that's why, you know, we want people to tell doctors about our website. We have a whole low carb for clinicians um, section on it um, to try and educate people. So it's, it's interesting when the patient becomes the educator, but we see it time and time again, and it's really helpful. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions of just if somebody's hearing this right now and maybe they've gone to their cardiologist and their cardiologist has said, you know, avoid saturated fat eat heart healthy grains or whatever. So would you recommend that that person seek out a new cardiologist or just take in these resources maybe to that person and just say, what about this? Like, what do you recommend to those people? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, seeking out a new cardiologist seems like such a great answer, but it's so hard to do sometimes because let's face it, our medical culture with our insurance and you know, depending on where you live and who's available and who takes what insurance and getting an appointment, it's a disaster. I mean, it is just not a good system for that at all. So a lot of times people are sort of trapped in a way. Um, but so sure, if you can get another cardiologist, if you could work with me or Christian Assad or Nadir Ali, or, you know, there, there are cardiologists who are very open to uh, low carb and um, more sort of up to date on, on the data behind that. Um, but we're few and far between. So chances are most people are going to have to work with a cardiologist who isn't as familiar um, with low carb. And that's, you know, where hopefully we can play a role at Diet Doctor or a low carb for clinician site and our soon to be launched continuing medical education course where we can start to have an impact. And, you know, there's there's a way to go about doing it. You know, just like you would communicate with anybody, you you probably wouldn't go up to your, your friend, your spouse and say, Hey, you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. And let right. me show you all this stuff about where you're wrong. Right. You, instead you say, Hey, look, you know, I've, I've been learning some new things and I was wondering if you'd be interested in take in reading this and give me your opinion and, um, and, you know, print out one of our guides. We have a guide for skeptical physicians, 
Um, we have a basic low carb for clinicians guide. You can print those out and bring it to them or give them the link and say, I'd love for you to help me with this and give me your opinion. You know, everybody wants to be needed and valued. So, so make your physician feel valued and say, I value your opinion. And, you know, this is really the way I want to go. And I, and, and give them the resources. And, um, and I think it's a great start. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I didn't even know that you offered that, but that's cool that you're kind of going in this direction now to help people speak with their doctors and and educate doctors, really. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that's so important. So I think one of the myths that I know that I still hear, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, is still this idea of cholesterol. And mm-hmm. I think that's still something a lot of people's regular doctors or cardiologists are talking to them about. So what would you say, I mean, what's the deal with cholesterol is high cholesterol a myth? Should we be fearing <laughs> foods with cholesterol in them? What would you say? Yeah, so two two different concepts that frequently get confused is is dietary cholesterol and then blood cholesterol. So dietary cholesterol is fascinating. So we, I just wrote a post about the American Heart Association came out with a new um, guideline, which they called a scientific guideline on dietary cholesterol. And in this in this um, guideline that they wrote, they, they went through the evidence and they actually did a very good job of showing all the evidence that proves dietary cholesterol does not increase your cardiovascular, uh, does not increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. Dietary cholesterol is not associated with more heart attacks or more strokes. Dietary cholesterol is not something to be feared. So they lay out all the evidence in support that basically overwhelmingly supports that. And then they conclude, and we recommend that you follow a diet in, in whole grains and low fat dairy and lean meats, uh, or if at all meats and fruits and vegetables. And they, they, their conclusion had absolutely nothing to do with the, the science that they presented, which was so fascinating oh, that wow. they would do this. But so my point in saying this though, is, is the science is, is fairly clear that dietary cholesterol is not a nutrient of concern. Like the di- the recent guidelines had said that dietary cholesterol um, may increase your total cholesterol a little bit, but it does so by raising your HDL and raising your LDL a small amount, if at all. So, um, and even if it does that, there's no evidence that it's linked to heart disease. So, dietary cholesterol, like in shellfish and in eggs, uh, is not a concern. Now, the the other aspect of cholesterol, though, is the blood level of cholesterol, and that's and that's a, a different story. So. Again, you have to sort of define what are we talking about. So if you're talking about total cholesterol, if your doctor is making important decisions based on a total cholesterol, that's when I really recommend getting a new doctor because total cholesterol is comprised of LDL, HDL, and you know so what we call remnant cholesterol. Um, and total cholesterol really tells you very little now that we know that we can know the breakdown of LDL and HDL. And so you want to know what are your ratios, what's your triglyceride to HDL ratio, what's your sort of your LDL to HDL ratio, but it's really what's called an ApoB to ApoA1 ratio. These are sort of more advanced tests that most people don't get, but they're much better at um, at telling you what your risk is and your response to lifestyle. And that's why a lot of doctors and a lot of societies don't recommend these tests because they're not really affected by drug treatment. They're not affected by statins, but they are affected by lifestyle. But we live in such a drug-focused medical society that um, that's where their focus is. But um, your question is, is it harmful? Is it dangerous? And, And the answer is, well, it depends, right? So there is plenty of evidence out there that says the higher your LDL cholesterol, the higher your risk of cardiovascular disease. 
But, and here's the big but, when you boil that down and you look at it and say, well, what about people who are metabolically healthy versus metabolically not healthy? What about people who have low or high triglycerides, low or high HDL and what their ratios are? When you do that, the risk starts to diminish very quickly. Now, does it go away completely? That's a question that I don't know we have the answer to, but it's clear if you take someone with insulin sensitivity, no metabolic disease, normal blood pressure, non-smoker, with a uh, naturally um, good to elevated HDL, a naturally low triglyceride, then that LDL particle is going to be much less atherogenic. Now, the hard part is though knowing is it atherogenic at all, meaning does it contribute to cardiovascular disease at all, and is it something that should be addressed? And that's where it has to be very individualized. Um, but that's the the step that a lot of doctors don't take. They take a knee jerk reaction. Um, to the LDL. Because when you look at the studies that involved people um, and said, uh, is this a risk or not? The vast majority of them were eating a standard American diet or a high carb, low fat diet. The vast majority of them were probably insulin resistant, although they didn't really measure that. But most of them had higher triglycerides and low HDL. And, and so in that setting, yeah, LDL is something to worry about you could treat the LDL or you could fix the setting. You could fix the metabolic disease and change the LDL particle. So the LDL particle is less atherogenic. And now you have a whole different scenario to evaluate and say, is this now dangerous? Which is a completely different question than asking if it was dangerous in the first place when the metabolic disease was there. Does uh, that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So total cholesterol then doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, not really. I mean, there are some old studies that use total cholesterol and correlated it with increased cardiovascular risk. So there is a correlation, but just because there's a correlation doesn't mean it's a good correlation. Doesn't mean it's a strong correlation. So the stronger correlations are going to come from LDL particle number, LDL particle size, triglyceride to HDL ratio, ApoB to ApoA1 ratio. That, those are the stronger predictors um, than total cholesterol. So if you're using total cholesterol, you're you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm terrible at analogies. I, I get so jealous of people who can just come up with these great analogies. And I'm trying to think of an analogy where you would be using your old technology when the new technology is right in front of your face, but you're ignoring it because you're, you're stuck in the old technology. But that's, you know, somebody who's good at analogies would come up with something creative there, but not me. Sorry. Maybe somebody who's <laughs> still, you know, using a flip phone and printing out directions on MapQuest or yes. something from their printer. Yes. <laughs> Instead of using just, you know, the Google Maps on your iPhone or Wait, it would be like if you had an iPhone and you looked up you looked up the directions and then you you printed it out on your printer. To, to carry it and, and read it while you were driving instead of just using your phone to guide you. There you go. Okay. Well, like there together we can come <laughs> up with analogies. So if somebody is thinking, wow, I don't think I've ever had any of these accurate tests and they just were walking into their cardiologist, what would be the main tests you would ask? I know I've heard of a calcium scan. Is that something useful? I mean, what are the best things? Calcium scans are definitely helpful. Um, they're They've gotten a lot of attention recently, which is a good thing because um, it's one of the few times where a guideline has included a test um, directed at not giving a drug. So if you're in sort of this intermediate risk and where all the previous guidelines would say, give a statin, give a statin, the most recent edition said, well, you could get a calcium score and if it's zero, then you don't give a statin. So 
that was pretty revolutionary for, um, you know, such a drug centric, um, medical society to, to put that in a guideline, which I loved. Um, but they come with their own, you know, if they're zero, they're fantastic. Um, but they come with, with their own challenges because if they're not zero, um, then it, it takes quite a bit of analysis to say, okay, well, what does this mean? Um, but so, so that's a great test I, that I do like people to get. And it's a test you can follow over time. It's not something you follow, you know, every few months or something, but maybe every few years you could follow it to see if it's progressing. Um, the, I, I like advanced lipid profiles and that's sort of a grab bag term for, um, l- looking at the LD, L- LDL particle number or the ApoB number, um, the size and density of the LDL, looking at an ApoB to ApoA1 ratio. Usually these are all sort of included in this advanced lipid testing, but it depends if you, you know, which lab you go to and, and what their sort of test du jour is. But it's looking at more than just the LDL concentration. So um, the one analogy is um, if you look at the cars on the road mm-hmm. um, and you have 100 cars with one person in each car, okay, that's going to cause more traffic than one big car with a hundred people in it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you, the LDL concentration in each setting, the number of people is a hundred in each of those, right? There's a hundred people, um, in the first scenario with one person in every car and a hundred people in the se- second scenario, um, with just one car. Well, in that scenario, the, the people are the LDL concentration, but the cars are the LDL particles. So because the, the particles carry the cholesterol. Yeah. So the second scenario, there's only one particle, which is going to be much less of a concern than the first scenario that has a hundred particles, even though the cholesterol concentration is the same. Oh, so that's fascinating. That, that was a really good analogy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's totally I didn't come up with that one myself though. That's why. Oh. So I had to borrow that one. Well, that's but, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. ThriveMarket is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. So you mentioned statins, and I know somebody's going to hear that and think, I'm on a statin, or I've been told I should be on a statin eventually or something. So when you're talking about these dietary interventions, does that actually, if somebody follows, let's say, a keto diet, does that actually help people stop taking medication or does it have them take less medication? What have you found from that? Yeah, great question. Great question. So statins, look, statins get so much publicity, um, both good and bad, and it's both overblown. Um, The bad is overblown and the good is overblown. Um, You know, they've been hailed as like a breakthrough landmark drug with these studies showing amazing results. And it's like 1% risk over five years, or 1% risk reduction over five years. So landmark, blockbuster, amazing, like that's anesthesia. That's, you know, preventing polio. That's curing tuberculosis. 
but it's not reducing your risk by 1% over five years. So it's a, it's a very small benefit, but a statistically significant benefit that's going to be good for some people. So some people should be on statins and will benefit from statins. Now, you know, interestingly, there's never really been a study on people with low carb lifestyles or keto lifestyles and statins. Is there reason to think it could be different? Sure, it could be, but we don't have that evidence. Um, but you can do other things to reduce your risk. Statin is one thing you can do to reverse your risk. But what I love is when I see people who are in that intermediate risk category, who their doctor wants to prescribe them a statin. And I say, well, let's work with you. Let's try time-restricted eating and low-carb diets and fix your lifestyle a little bit and reassess in three months or six months. And all of a sudden, you plug them back into the computer, into the into the formula, and they don't f- meet the criteria for a statin anymore. And you, mm-hmm. it's only through lifestyle without any drug that you completely reduce their risk and um, they no longer would even be a discussion for a statin if they went back into their doctor's office. So, so absolutely lifestyle can, can change your risk. Now, whether you can come off a statin or not take a statin, you know, that's blank. I can't make a blanket statement about that. That's going to be very different for everybody. But if the question is, can you do other things to reduce your risk? The answer is absolutely. And, and, you know, low carb nutrition, losing weight, improving your metabolic disease, um, reducing your triglycerides, raising your HDL, uh, improving your insulin sensitivity, all those things uh, add towards reducing your overall cardiovascular risk and can add towards you know, promoting your health. Right? We focus so much on preventing disease. We focus so much on specific lab tests. But really what we want to do is help people live better. Yeah. You know, we want them to live longer and live better. And if you had to choose one or the other, most people would choose live better <laughs> over live longer. So we really want to improve people's lives and and statins don't always do that. Right. That's so well said. So you mentioned time-restricted eating, which I was also going to ask you about. It sounds like you're a fan of that, which is also known as intermittent fasting. Um, if people have heard either term, but are you a fan of that for most people or some people. Yeah, for just about everybody. Okay. It's, it's it's a rare person I've met who I think time restricted eating doesn't benefit. And look, time restricted eating. There was a recent study um, that actually came out of I'm in San Diego, so it came out of UCSD and, and the Salk Institute here in San Diego, where they just looked at 14 hours of fasting. That's it, just 14 hours of fasting per day, which is which is not much right. at all. I mean, if you stop eating at 6 p.m. Um, that means you fast until 8 a.m. That's that's not a tall uh, a tall order or a hard ask. And they found significant benefits. They found weight loss. They found better uh, metabolic health um, with with just a small intervention like that. So and it's easy. You know what kind of interventions do we have that um, cost you nothing? Yeah, saves you time and doesn't require a whole lot of thought and is effective. And so time-restricted eating is that. And so I usually recommend people do more of like a 16-8 or an 18-6 with an occasional 24-hour fast. Um, and then for some people, a longer three to five day fast once or twice a year, maybe, you know, I'm a little, that's a little more individualized, but, but I think everybody should be doing some version of a time-restricted eating because we, we really were steered um, by great marketing, fantastic marketing, we were steered into this concept that you need to eat every two hours, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And there's zero, zero credible evidence uh, to support any of that. It was just phenomenal marketing by the cereal and snack companies 
Um, and we were really led astray when the opposite is true. We need time for our bodies to not be dealing with nutrients, for our insulin levels to go down. And it's a, it's a sort of a natural way to reduce caloric intake as well. Um, now, you know, when it comes to time restricted eating, personally, I find those who are low carb are find it easier to do because low carb, um, moderate protein, higher fat diet tends to be more satiating. You feel full for longer. Um, so you can go longer without thinking about food, without getting hangry as people are saying now, and without, um, you know, worrying about where your next meal is going to come from. So I find it, it's a great one, two punch to combine the two together. Yeah, I love it. I did a whole podcast episode about it. I've been doing it for about two years and everything you said, I mean, I think it's so much easier because you, there's one less meal of a day you have to prepare for yourself and it's so sustainable. And you're, I mean, I found for myself, my body has just gotten so used to it that now if I'm on vacation or something and everybody's going to breakfast, it's actually more difficult for me to eat in the morning than not to eat. Um, It's just so sustainable. Yeah. And, and it, same thing. Like if I'm on vacation and I'm like, oh, my family's eating, so I'll eat. I usually just feel sluggish. Yeah. I feel sort of heavy and sluggish in the morning. I'm, I'm used to it. And I find that with a lot of my patients. And, you know, I look in the, when I was younger in the eighties and nineties, I was a triathlete and I was the guy, I would purposely wake up an hour and a half before my workouts so I could eat because I felt like I had to eat before my workout. So I would, you know, think about it. If you're working out at seven o'clock on a Saturday, (laughs) waking up an hour and a half ahead of time so I could eat. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And then you're impacting your sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and now I prefer to work out fasted more than anything. So it it just shows you how, how your body can change and how, uh, old advice is definitely not necessarily good advice. Definitely. So, Aside from the cholesterol myth, do you think there's any other cardiology myth we've just kind of gotten used to hearing so, something aside from what you've mentioned? Hmm. Well, cholesterol is definitely the big one. I mean, there's been a lot of attention recently about stents. I, I'm uh, not sure this is something that your audience is all that interested in, but you know, from a cardiology standpoint, and this is great a great example of why we need randomized controlled trials. Um, because it was just sort of assumed that stents really helped people. It was going to help reduce heart attacks and was going to get rid of angina. And it was going to, you know, these stents were amazing. But then when you look at the randomized controlled trials, well, no, it's very clear. It does not reduce the risk of heart attacks. And it's now becoming clear. It doesn't even really reduce angina compared to, to medical therapy. Now, this is, of course, the caveat that it's stable coronary disease, not when you're having a heart attack. Okay. If I'm having a heart attack, I want that stent. I want the best interventional cardiologist to put that stent in. But for people who have, you know, 70, 80, 90% stable narrowing, stents really have been recently shown to have very little uh, benefit beyond lifestyle and medical therapy. So that's been a, a big change in cardiology and a, and a myth that we're, we're still fighting against. Um, and otherwise, it, it really comes down to cholesterol, you know, blood pressure. People have been talking about um, being more aggressive with treatment. Um, a recent study, the SPRINT study, showed that by treating people down to a, below 120 as opposed to 140, um, had a small benefit on mortality who lived and died. Um, it took th- an average of three drugs to get people there. And the trade-off was more kidney disease, more lightheadedness, dizziness, and falls. So it's it's you know not a, a free lunch for sure. There was definitely a trade-off. Um, and again, it sort of ignored the idea of, well, what other lifestyle interventions can we do 
to lower blood pressure. That's not going to make you lightheaded and dizzy and fall and increase your risk of kidney disease. You know, it's, it's just too much of a drug centric approach, but, um, so that's another issue uh, in cardiology that I deal with a lot kind of against the um, standard guidelines. Yeah. You've mentioned grains a couple of times. So I think, you know, everybody now would probably agree that refined grains are nutrient poor and should be avoided. You know, mostly mm-hmm. they're in processed food, but you've mentioned whole grains as well. And then you've also said mm-hmm. that some people tolerate a higher carb diet than others. Um, what's your stance on whole grains? Like if, for example, I tolerate sweet potatoes, all types of potatoes, you know, starchier vegetables, it seems like you do as well. But what about rice, quinoa, bulgur, you know, those whole grains? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm still, I'm still a fan of eliminating grains completely. Okay. Um, there's absolutely no need for them. Um, they don't necessarily add anything. Any of the studies showing benefits to whole grains, um, we're comparing it to a refined grain diet uh, or comparing it to a standard American diet. So that's a no brainer. Of course, it's going to be better. So, you know, if you're going to choose a grain, yes, make it a whole grain, make it an ancient grain um, if you're going to choose it. Now, I would usually still recommend people try and avoid it, but some people really enjoy it. Some people find um, something's missing in their diet that they kind of just can't get over. Um, and so if they're not someone who needs to be keto, then sure you can, you can have it. I don't, for someone who's metabolically healthy and carb flexible, I don't think it's necessarily dangerous, but, but I definitely caution against this message that they are inherently healthy and need to be eaten. And you are missing out on health benefits if you don't eat them. Because again, that evidence comes from a comparison to a standard American diet or a comparison to refined grains. It doesn't come to a comparison of no grains in a otherwise healthy, um, low carb diet that, that does not exist. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I think it's just been ingrained in us because on everything still it's stamped heart, healthy grains. You associate with health, heart, health grains, heart, health grains, right. Whole grains with, um, with plenty of sugar, yeah. um, are, are labeled as heart healthy. And that just boggles my mind. Yeah. I mean, that must be super infuriating for you. You must just avoid supermarkets at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> I love the perimeters of the yeah, supermarkets. That's true. I love the meat. I love the meat counter. I love the fish counter and I love the veggies. What about exercise? What types or one type would you say is best for heart health? Yeah. If I, if I had one, pr- one issue with, um, sort of the, the keto low carb messaging community, it's how they devalue exercise. Uh-huh. And and I agree, exercise for weight loss is not um, the best choice, but exercise for health is a completely different story. So I look at it as, as three main types of exercise, the um, resistance training, the um, cardio aerobic zone two, whatever you want to call it. It's all sort of the same or high intensity interval training. And the best exercise program is going to have a mix of all three of those, depending on where you are in your experience of exercise, where you are um, in terms of what your goals are. Um, you know, resistance training is going to be better for bone mineral density, is going to be better for maintaining lean muscle, mu- muscle mass and body composition. Um, cardio is good for um, fat loss. It can be really good for fat loss. It just takes longer. Um, to achieve the effects. Uh, it can be really good for just cardiopulmonary fitness. Uh, high intensity interval training um, has been shown to be really good for uh, metabolic disease and sort of mitochondrial function and insulin sensitivity. 
Um, so I, I think a, a really good mix of them uh, is really the best answer. With beginners probably doing a little bit more cardio, a little less interval training, and then as you progress, you can sort of flip that um, ratio a little bit. Mm, okay. Yeah, I found for myself, not based on a medical opinion at all, just the things that I like doing and I'll actually do are good for me to follow. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, the best exercise is the one you exactly. stick with. There's definitely truth to that, right? Like if you doing cardio, it doesn't have to be, you know, watching friends reruns on a on a treadmill in a stuffy gym. It could be outside with your friends. Like my wife this morning went for a walk with her friends going up and down these stairs that lead to this beautiful beach and they go up and down the stairs like five times and then walk along the coast and that's pretty good zone two training as far as I'm concerned. Right. That sounds fantastic, right? Yeah, I know. I think kind of like the heart healthy grain thing. I think a lot of us, me in particular in the past, thought cardio equals one of these box gym memberships and just 45 minutes on the elliptical every day. And it just sounded terrible, you know, until I found things that I actually enjoyed doing. Right, right. That's a great point. And and we've we've really devalued or, or underemphasized resistance training, I think, especially for women. Because women sort of have this concept, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm some, I want to look trim and thin. I don't want to look bulky. And it's all the big muscle heads who are lifting weights. I don't belong there. But we've learned that resistance training is very important um, for health in general and especially for the aging population. Um, so I, I strongly recommend resistance training for women for them to sort of get over the stereotype that women don't lift. That women absolutely can and should lift. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you mentioned Diet Doctor has always new resources coming out and obviously very reliable information. What would you say to just the average person? Is there a good website for people to go to if they want to stay on top of new medical research? Maybe that it's kind of more in understandable terms and not so scientific. Is there any place you'd refer someone to? <laughs> well, of course, Diet Doctor. Diet Doctor, yeah. Um, yeah, so at, at Diet Doctor, we have a news section where we try and cover uh, the latest research oh, cool. um, and cover it in a way that makes it very um, easy to understand. And also what we recently started is doing the same thing on our YouTube channel um, to do a short you know, three to six minute video um, explaining the study, explaining the science uh, to really kind of keep people up to date on that. And then we have longer form guides uh, that tries to summarize the science um, so really trying to bridge the gap of making it easy to implement it into your life, but still explaining the science and the rationale behind it. So yeah, I really think we're, we're one of the best sites out there for, uh, for that type of information. That's so funny. I didn't even know that you had that kind of new feature on your site when I asked that, but yeah. it seems like that's just a one-stop shop, which I'm fine with. The fewer places yeah. to go, the better. Right. Like that's what we're trying to be. For those people who want a recipe and a meal plan and a shopping list, we've got you covered. For those people who want you know, a regular update of the latest science and the latest news, we've got you covered. So for people who want the longer guides that's evidence-based to really learn more and, and get deeper into the topics, we've got you covered. For those people who are clinicians and want to know you know, from, a, a, I guess, a more doctor-speak and, and evidence um, version of of low carb and health, we've got you covered. So we really are trying to cover all those bases and, and be the one site that people go to. That's amazing. So aside from there, where's the best place for our listeners to find you? 
Or is that uh, well, the spot? <laughs> yeah, right now that is the spot. I mean, you know, previously I was at lowcarbcardiologist.com and I still have my website there and I see patients um, through a telemedicine practice there, but I'm not really updating the blog or doing any sort of update to the site. It's just sort of a way to contact me and reach me through there and through Diet Doctor. Because right now all my writing and all my attention is on Diet Doctor to make our information as, as just helpful as it can be. That's amazing. And then do you do a Twitter or an Instagram? Are you active? Oh yeah. Twitter, Twitter, uh, be sure MD on Twitter. Um, not on Instagram at all. Um, yeah. Probably for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram, the beast. (laughs) Yeah. Every now and then I get on Instagram just so I could see pictures from my friend who lives in Montana and makes me jealous. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, great. So, Thank you so much for being here today. I learned more in this 45 minutes than I have in a long time. This was just so illuminating. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I know listeners will find everything you said extremely valuable. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.